Romans 12, 1 through 5. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Romans 12, 14 through 18. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Romans 12, 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The word of the Lord. Before the message uh, today, I just want to let you know that we are celebrating communion, the Lord's Supper this morning. And after we have served communion, if you have a need for prayer for yourself personally, for someone in your family, uh, or you just like prayer for your marriage, because we're going to be talking about marriage today, we'll invite you to the front and we'll have some, a row of seats here uh, where you can have a seat and we'll pray for you while communion is being served. Today, as I mentioned, we're going to talk about the theme of marriage and we're going to do it in kind of an unusual way by reflecting on one particular chapter of the Bible, Romans chapter 12. It's a part of scripture we've been studying since August the 5th. And today we're going to take some of the principles there where, where the transformed life of a follower of Jesus is described and apply these principles of a transformed life specifically to marriage. Now the foundational verses for Romans chapter 12 are the first two. I'd like to look at them again. The chapter begins this way with the Apostle Paul writing, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, and the therefore is reflecting back on what he has just said about the greatness of the gospel of Jesus and what he's done in securing our salvation. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I'd like to focus this morning on that second verse, that you not be conformed to this world or this age. The Apostle Paul's referring to the desires, the lusts, the deceits, the influences of the age in which we live that has a tendency to pull us away from the truth of the will and word of God. Don't be conformed to the world, but rather transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, a renewed mind is one which thinks according to God's will. One in which decisions are made in accord with what God says in His Scripture in his word. And we want to particularly apply 
uh, God's Word, His will, to the topic, the theme of marriage this morning. As we think about marriage according to God's will and how it differs from the perspective of the world around us, there are a couple things that I would really stress. First is the need to think about marriage not as a contract, but as a covenant. On the screen you'll see a couple of verses from the Old Testament book of Malachi. Malachi is not a well-known book. It's the last book of the Old Testament. The prophet Malachi is issuing a rebuke to God's people. And as part of the rebuke, we find these words. We find him saying, Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Note the word covenant that God here uses in reference to marriage. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? Now that's a remarkable statement. A portion of the Spirit of God in the union of marriage? It seems the prophet is telling us that God has so blessed the institution of marriage which he created that he tells us here there's a portion of his very spirit, his presence, in their union. Now I stress this with you because the way the world in which we live typically thinks of marriage is more as a, a simple agreement between a woman and a man, a contract, as depicted on the screen, string, <laughs> screen rather, with the straight line that you'll see. Contract between a wife and a husband. That's typically the way of thinking about marriage in our world. And if things don't go well, of course, that contract might be broken. A more biblical way to think about marriage is as a covenant, depicted on the screen as a triangular relationship with the wife and husband at the base of the triangle, but God at the top. In a Christian wedding ceremony, and we do a number of those here at our church, our pastors here, several of us are licensed to do weddings, when we do a wedding ceremony, we consider it a, a worship service. And when man and woman take their wedding vows, those vows are not simply being taken before the, their friends in the audience and their family. They're being taken before God. So as the triangle depicts, God is the witness of the covenant vows. The vows are actually being made before God. The other thing you'll note about that covenant is we, we have depicted a, an arrow going from the wife to God and the husband to God. That's one way of emphasizing the fact that as wife and husband individually grow closer to God in their marriage, they at the same time grow closer to one another. And when our pastors here do weddings, it is our goal to help couples during the premarital time, during the season of engagement, to move up that triangle, so to speak, growing closer to God as they grow closer to each other. When a couple calls one of our pastors and says, would you be willing to, to do our wedding? And it might be any one of uh, David or, or Sonny or Andrew or Brian or myself, Wes. Um, Typically, we'll have a meeting with them, and then a period of preparation begins. They'll do an online premarital assessment. But one of the things we want to help them do in those three, four months before marriage 
is to grow spiritually together, to study Scripture together, and to pray together. Many married couples simply don't pray together outside of meals. I want to read to you a quote from Brad Wilcox, who is a professor at the University of Virginia, professor of sociology regarding a new book he's written. He writes, We find that probably the most powerful predictor of a happy marriage on the religious side of things is when a couple prays together outside of just grace at meals. And so during the premarital time, we try to help couples learn to pray together. Now, because we focus on spiritual growth in the time before marriage, we often ask something of couples here that many consider very extreme. If they're living together, not married, we typically ask them to move apart before the wedding. That may be for three months, for four months. People may think that's very extreme in our world today because it's so commonly accepted to live together before you get married. But we believe, because we're trying to help couples grow toward God together, learning to pray, learning to study Scripture, that it's not consistent with that goal to be clearly violating His will in some other area. And I just want you to know why we, why we take that particular position. But it's our goal in, in marriage here to provide the strongest possible spiritual foundation for couples that are entering this covenant agreement and that they understand it as a covenant being made before God. So the first thing I'd say about thinking about marriage according to God's will and word and way is to understand it as a covenant, not a mere contract. Secondly, to understand marriage not for self-fulfillment primarily, but rather for glorifying God. I recently finished a book called Good Faith. It was written by uh, David Kenneman and Gabe Lyons. David Kenneman is the uh, president of the Barna Research Group, and they do broad surveys of the thinking of American adults, particularly around religious matters. And in their new book, uh, released in 2016, they compiled research uh, about what U.S. adults are thinking about things related to morality. And on the screen, you will see six principles that they define as the morality of self-fulfillment, the way most adults in the United States today think about life. The first principle of this morality of self-fulfillment is simply this. To find yourself, look within yourself. 91% of U.S. adults agreed with that statement. The second one, people should not criticize someone else's life choices. 89% of U.S. adults agreed with that. Thirdly, to be fulfilled in life, pursue the things you desire most. 86% agreed with that. Fourth, enjoying yourself is the highest goal of life. 84% agreed with that statement. People can believe whatever they want as long as those beliefs don't affect society. 79% agreed with that. And then finally, any kind of sexual expression between two consenting adults is fine. 69% of the adults in the United States of America, States of America surveyed agreed with that. 
Now, in contrast to this, the authors of the book, Good Faith, Kinnaman and Lyons, uh, because they're Christians, they suggest six principles of God's moral order. And they suggest this is the way we should think. If we're not to be conformed to this world, but we're to live according to God's will. To find yourself, discover the truth about yourself outside yourself in Jesus. Secondly, loving others does not always mean staying silent. Sometimes we do as the Bible says to do and speak the truth in love. Third, joy is found not in pursuing our own desires, but in giving of ourselves to bless others. Fourth, the highest goal of life is giving glory to God. Fifth, God gives people the freedom to believe whatever they want, but those beliefs always affect society. And sixth, God designed boundaries for sex and sexuality in order for humans to flourish. Now the reason I stress these things is that many people view marriage as simply and primarily for their own self-fulfillment, for their own happiness, for their own enjoyment. But I think as we study Scripture, we will see that God has a far higher goal and design for human beings. And that is for glorifying God. And so as we begin to think about marriage, according to Scripture, I think we first need to understand it not as a contract, but a covenant. Secondly, not primarily for self-fulfillment, but rather giving glory to God. Second, see marriage as a partnership in serving God together. The description of God's institution of marriage the relationship he created, is found in the book of Genesis chapter 2. There we find the Lord giving Adam both work and a command to fulfill. The scripture says the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. He gave man meaningful work. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So now he gives him his command, his word to fulfill, giving him his work to do, his word to fulfill. And then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So God gives him work to do, his word to fulfill, and a helper to help him in doing his work and fulfilling his word. Now, we should not understand the word helper here as in any way meaning inferior. If we're going to say that, we have trouble in the New Testament when Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as our helper. The point is simply that man and woman were called together to help one another do God's work Fulfill God's word. Right after these verses in Genesis 2.24, we find the foundational verse on marriage in the Bible. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. One relationship, one union, complementary different gifts and roles. Now how does this relate to what we've been studying all last month in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 12, we saw the Apostle Paul 
teaching similarly, similarly about the church, when he writes, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Do you hear what the Apostle Paul is saying? He's saying, just like the human body has different parts that work together as a unified whole, so is the body of Christ, the church. This morning, as we come together as a church at River Oaks, we bring all different types of God-given gifts. And when we use those in service to others and the world beyond us, we are our most effective. The same principle, I believe, can be rightly applied to marriage. When we understand that if God brings a couple together, He has brought that couple together because He knows that the two together can serve God more effectively than the two apart. I remember uh, moving to Winston-Salem as a, a single after college, and uh, I was single until I was, Beth and I married at age 28. So in those years between 21 and 28, I was wondering if God was going to give me a wife or if I was called to be single. And I can remember praying fairly reluctantly, um, Lord, if you want me to, to, if I could serve you more effectively as a single, that's what I'll do. But if the two of us together can serve you more effectively than the two apart, bring us together. And that's what he did. By the way, as a little aside for those who are single, I'll say this. The Bible holds singleness in high regard and considers it in many ways a special calling and a gifting from God because the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that when you're single, you can attend upon the Lord without distraction. And uh, so we need to consider that when we think about singleness. But as we f reflect upon marriage, one of the most helpful things I think we can do for those of us who are married is to consider the gifts that your spouse brings to the marriage that you don't have. For example, for me, my wife Beth is technologically brilliant. I mean, she was a computer programmer, a systems analyst at the former Wachovia Bank uh, today, Wells Fargo, and she knows everything technological, so she can program everything in our house. Every, she, she thinks about technology like a 20-year-old. Me, on the other hand, I cannot change my watch next month when daylight savings time starts. So she does everything technological. When you appreciate some of the differences, and differences can make marriage challenging, but we learn to appreciate them as complementary is bringing strength into a relationship, it can be a great help. Thirdly, be prepared for the challenges of marriage. And yes, I do mean challenges. If you're single, I would, I would tell you to enter marriage with your eyes wide open. It's not easy. It's challenging. It takes work. Have you ever heard the definition of a husband? A husband is someone who stands by you in problems you would not have if you had not married him. <laughs> yeah, they're, 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 
There are indeed going to be problems and challenges in, in marriage. But on a serious note, I want to urge you to think about something. What if God's plan for, for marriage is not to maximize our happiness, but to maximize our growth in likeness to Jesus Christ? What if his goal is not primarily our enjoyment, our self-fulfillment, but primarily our growth in Christ-likeness? For growth in Christ-likeness to occur, there must be challenges. For us to learn how to forgive, someone has to do something to us for which we need to forgive. For us to learn to to love the difficult people to love, there's got to be hard to love people around us. And as we take these principles of Romans chapter 12, which really lay out the, the picture of a life that has been transformed by thinking God's way. And as we apply these to marriages, I think they can paint a picture of how our marriages can better reflect the glory of God. Be prepared for the challenges of marriage by commitment to unconditional love. Unconditional love is love that's not conditioned on the person who we love. A person may not be as lovable as we'd like them to be. God's love is a quality of himself. He loved us when we were unlovable. The Bible says he loved us when we were still sinners. And we love him only because he first loved us. And then he calls us to show unconditional love. He says to husbands in the Bible, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Secondly, be prepared for the challenges of marriage by commitment to honor. We find this call in Romans 12 and verse 10, Outdo one another in showing honor, in showing respect to one another. Marriages really suffer when spouses lose the commitment to honoring and respecting one another. Thirdly, be prepared for the challenges of marriage by commitment to humility. In marriage, perhaps above all other relationships, our self-centeredness and our pride are challenged. But God calls us as followers of Jesus to grow in the beautiful quality of humility that puts the interest of others above ourselves. What if marriage is not primarily about maximizing our own happiness, but maximizing our growth in likeness to Jesus Christ? Be prepared for the challenges of, marriages by, of marriage by commitment to also forgiveness and peacemaking. The Bible calls us to forgive all people, to be at peace with all people, but especially so in the relationship of marriage. And let me just stress this again. We should think about marriage as a relationship in which God wants to work on each of us individually to conform us to the likeness of His Son Jesus because that is God's primary goal for every Christian. The book of Romans tells us that God has predestined us to be conformed to the likeness of His Son. Throughout our lives, He wants to progressively change us so that we 
look and act and behave and think more like Jesus Christ. That's God's goal. And marriage is a relationship where much of that work can be brought about. And it is not easy. One of God's purposes for marriage is to reflect the love of Christ for his church before a watching world. The verses you'll see on the screen now come from the book of Ephesians chapter 5. And they are remarkable. The Apostle Paul is going to say what he says is even for himself a profound mystery when he writes, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There are quotation marks around that verse because it is a direct quote of Genesis 2.24. It's the same verse Jesus quoted when he talked to the Pharisees about marriage in the Gospels. Matthew chapter 19. The point is simply that God's intention for marriage and the definition of marriage has not changed. It's the same as it was in the book of Genesis. And Paul goes on to say, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. I don't really understand what this means except to say it seems to be saying that a Christian marriage is supposed to be a reflection of the love of Christ for the church where we continue to love one another through the challenges we face, the challenges with money and finances, the challenges with health, the challenges that may arise with children, and challenges will come. Paul sums it up. Let each one of you love his wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. That last verse has given rise to a book that I'd like to recommend to you. You'll see it on the screen. Pastor Sonny Flowers on our staff tells me that it's one he uses most often. Love and Respect in Marriage. And a uh, powerful uh, book that's been of help to many, many, many couples. Jesus' love for his church, which is the model for the marital relationship, was shown for us by his leaving the glory and perfection of heaven and taking a mere human body. And then at the age of 33, allowing himself to be arrested and to be mocked and flogged and spit upon and beaten and then nailed to a cross. There on the cross, the wrath of God toward our sin would be poured out upon Jesus as if he were guilty of all. There he would become the Lamb of God slain for the, from the foundation of the world, who takes away the sin of the world, who takes away our sin. He took our place. He became our substitute. And through our faith in him, we can be forgiven by God joined in an eternal relationship with Him, with His Spirit coming to indwell us. So critical and central is the, cruci uh, the crucifixion of Jesus to His mission that He has left us, His followers, a way by which we can always reflect upon it and remember it. It's what we call the Lord's Supper or communion. You may have known it as the Eucharist in a tradition in which you grew up. The Apostle Paul writes the words you'll see on the screen about the Lord's Supper. 
He writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now that's a remarkable statement, isn't it? If you eat the bread in a moment or drink the juice, you are in some way proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. These are sober words of warning, and I think they tell us simply not to take communion lightly. To be sure, first of all, that you are indeed in a right relationship with God. That you are trusting the work of Jesus on the cross for your own salvation. And He is truly your Lord. And you are His follower. It's also a time to examine ourselves in regard to relationships with other people. There's somebody we need to forgive. There's some step we need to take to be a peacemaker. So I want to take a moment now and pray and give us each a few minutes to examine ourselves as this scripture calls us to do. Let's pray. Father, would you help each of us by your Holy Spirit to be prepared to take the Lord's Supper in the right way. If there's anyone here who is not sure whether she or he truly knows you. May this be the day that you bring that one to trust fully in what Jesus has done for them. Would you bring them to yield fully to the Lordship of Jesus in their lives? Would you help us now, Lord, by searching our hearts? And we pray the words of King David. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting.